Let's pray. Gracious God, give us strength. Encourage our hearts. Fill us with the patience of your spirit as we wait on you. Your triumphant return. Help us to experience you in our daily life. In your precious son's name, amen. So, a little boy walks into his backyard with a baseball bat and a ball. He tosses it into, he says, I am the greatest hitter in the world. He tosses it in the air, takes his cut and misses. Strike one. Dutifully picks up his ball, tosses it into the, I am the greatest hitter in the world. Tosses it into the air again. Takes his second cut, swings and misses. Strike two. He repeats the process a third time. I am the greatest hitter in the world. Picks up a ball, tosses it in the air, swings and misses. Strike three. The little boy within, with no shame says, man, I didn't know. I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. Don't you love that perspective? You try something, you try something, it doesn't work. You keep persevering and all that had to change was his perspective on the situation as he endured the trials of missing all three pitches that he pitched to himself. <laughs> I'm the greatest pitcher in the world. I struck myself out and I'm the greatest hitter in the world. We've been in on a study of James. We have been journeying through James and we are finally gonna land that plane because next week is Advent. Can you believe that? Christmas is upon us. Next Sunday is the first Sunday in Advent, which means an end of a semester is near. But it means Christmas is almost here too. That's exciting. Thanksgiving's between now and then. We can't discount that, right? But we're going to land the plane of James. We've been in, we've been in the, we've been walking verse by verse through the go gospel, the book of James, for a while now. So turn me, if you will, to James chapter five, verse seven. That's where we're going to pick up to start with. And we're going to finish the chapter 5 today. Starting in verse 7. Be patient, therefore, beloved. Until the coming of the Lord, the farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until he receives, receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Beloved, do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. See, the judge is standing at the doors as an example of suffering and patience, beloved. Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Indeed, we call blessed those who showed endurance. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. All right, so James has been preaching. In fact, he's preaching to a group of churches that are scattered and reading his letter together. And he starts the whole book with, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials and tribulations. And we all go, I'm supposed to be happy when I suffer. Got it. Next. And he's gone through and he's been teaching about patience and he's been teaching about the use of the careful use of the tongue as an instrument of the gospel, not as an instrument of division. He's talked about church conflict. He's talked about vain ambition and relying on things other than the gospel. And he's been preaching this to a church. You know, sometimes you read the Bible and you go, okay, that's really talking about non-Christians because look how, awesome, how bad they are. He's writing to Christians who are divisive and nasty and envious and jealous and fighting, you know, because all good Christians are perfect, right? 
So he's having this pastoral conversation with him, and then he starts in on verse 7, and he says, you must be patient when you face trials. He's, he's coming back to his starting theme about enduring trial and have endurance, being patient in suffering until the coming of the Lord. He puts an eschatological spin on suffering and patience. Yes, that's a big church word for end times, okay? So when I say eschatological, I mean like revelations, book of revelations kind of stuff. So he's talking to a group of people probably being persecuted by the Romans, probably being discounted by society, some of them being executed for being a Christian. And he says, endure patiently for the coming day of the Lord. Now, a lot of times when we are worried about suffering or having a hardship or going through a difficult time, we're just waiting for the end of the difficult time. We're ready for this to be over. We're ready to get past exams. We're ready to get past whatever our challenge is that we're faced with, and we're just looking for the day after. And James goes, be patient and endure for when Jesus comes back. <laughs> He's got a different perspective. He's not talking about just getting through a particular trial. He's giving us a little bit of a warning that you're going to endure stuff and have to endure stuff and have to endure stuff until Jesus has final victory. So he's given, us, he's given his people as they're reading this a reason for hope in the midst of trial and persecution, a reason beyond, a reason for hope beyond just getting past a set of circumstances, but towards a circumstantial, circumstantial change where sin and destruction and pain and death ceases. In fact, the metaphor he uses right there in that first couple of verses is he talks about a farmer waiting for rain. Did you catch that? My Bible to cooperate with me here. Be patient, therefore, beloved. Until the coming of the Lord, there's the eschatological spin. The farmer waits for the precious crop from the earth, being patient with it until it receives the, the early and the late rain. Rain is a metaphor in Scripture for cleansing and revival. Now, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Like everything washed away and made new. And in a farmer context, they need rain for what? A harvest. So rain in scripture is a sign of God's cleansing and washing away. Anybody read a story called Noah? Massive rain reset the whole earth, did it not? So he go, Noah goes through rain, goes through a rainstorm, goes through a worldwide flood, and then the whole world is made new by that rain and by that cleansing of the earth. Because why did God do that? Because sin had become so magnified on the face of the earth that God did a reset. And then promised never to reset that way. And again, again, with rain and flood. Instead, this time, he sends Jesus for the reset. But throughout Scripture, rain is a symbol of that. It's this idea that the renewal is coming. So when he says the farmer is waiting patiently for the rain, yes, farmers wait patiently for rain so they can have a harvest. But if you put the, the end time spin on it, what is he saying? We should wait patiently for the cleansing and the reset of the Lord. When we're faced with trials, the, good, the really good stuff is coming. Because then he holds up the patience of the prophets. And a couple times in this passage, we're going to continue reading in five in a few minutes, but he's holding prophets up. And, you know, when you're enduring suffering and trial, you always want somebody to say Job should be your model. If you know the story of Job, he lost his family, he lost his income, he lost his house, he lost his health, 
He lost everything except his life. His friends look at Job and say, Job, you should curse God and die because he's clearly mad at you. Something has happened. What did you do wrong that God is judging you this way? And Job endured with patience and faith, and it ended up with twice what he had before when it was all said and done. And so James comes along and goes, there's a good example of enduring through hardship. And for those of us who are enduring hardship, we're like, we don't want to be Job. (laughs) But that's not what he's saying. He's not saying it's going to be as bad as Job. He's saying you should have the same faith, patience, and endurance in the face of suffering as Job. I guess you could say, if Job can handle that, I can handle this. be one way of looking at it. But our hope is not in the end or change of circumstances. Our hope is in the return, the victorious return of Christ. Because maybe your circumstances don't change no matter how you pray. Maybe no matter how many times you ask for something to turn around, it doesn't. Maybe so many times, maybe no matter how many times you ask for a particular health condition to go away or a particular set of circumstances to go away, they just don't. And that could obviously lead to a moment of despair, right? So James goes, the circumstances might not change, but our hope is not in a change of circumstances. Our hope is in a returning and triumphant Jesus. Look at verse 12. This is an important verse in the passage. It's kind of a bridge verse, and when I read it, it even sounds a little bit out of place, but let's read it. Above all, my beloved, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So he's been talking about patience and suffering, and he says, but above all that, let your yes be yes and your no be no, don't swear. What? (laughs) You've been talking about patience. You've been talking about suffering. You're talking about endurance. Now you're coming at me for swearing. By the way, anybody feel guilty about that one? Don't swear an oath. I promise to God. Or you might face condemnation. Condemnation. What's he saying? Why would he say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Let your promises be good. Let your word be what it says it is. Right in the middle of that. And then he turns from patience to 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 swearing an oath, not cussing, swearing an oath to persistence in prayer. And verse 12 is kind of like a hinge between these two sections. Here's why. There's two parts to it. There's a positive and a negative dimension to this. The negative dimension is don't swear an oath. Now think about that. Why do we swear oaths? Why do we make promises? Why does somebody go to you, I promise to God, I'm going to do it. By the way, somebody goes, I swear to God, I swear on my mom's grave, whatever, what are they, what's usually going on there? They have an integrity issue in the first place and so they have to double down on their swear or their, or their oath, right? I promise, this time I'll do it. I swear to God, I swear to God. That's usually in response to, yeah, last time you promised that and you didn't do it. So he's, he's basically saying, don't swear an oath that you can't keep. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Christians ought to have enough integrity, they don't have to swear an oath. If we follow God, and we follow, you know, we did the Ten Commandments over the summer, thou shalt not lie, <laughs> right? If we make a promise to somebody with integrity, we should be seeking to keep it. We, sh- we should be so good at keeping it that we shouldn't have to go, I swear to God, because somebody will trust and know that we're faithful and trustworthy. So he's like, your yes should be yes and your no should be no. There's no reason to double down. Most of the time people double down, why? Because they have an integrity issue to begin with. 
and they're trying to convince you that they're trustworthy. They might even be trying to manipulate you. Like, I really mean it this time. I promise if you'll just do this for me, I promise you I will do it this time. Maybe they're trying to manipulate you even by swearing big time, by promising bigger time than the last time that they failed to keep the promise. <laughs> right? I promise, Mom, I will clean up my room. There's one that we've broken all the time. You know what I mean? So he's like, it's an integrity issue for us. Don't swear an oath. Christians ought to tell the truth and keep their promises. Then he says, or you will be condemned. And it sounds harsh, doesn't it? Or you'll be condemned. But James, and I've said it a couple times before, James is, we think that James that wrote this passage is the half-brother of Jesus, Mary's other son, theoretically by Joseph, I assume, right? And so he got to grow up with Jesus. And again, I make this joke every time, but like, how would you like to have Jesus as an older brother? Why can't you just be like your older brother? Yeah, don't make me try to measure up to that one. You know what I mean? But they spent time together. And so when you read James, sometimes you can kind of hear a little bit of Jesus popping in. This is Matthew 5, 34. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your, word, let your word be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from the evil one. Sound vaguely familiar? Let your yes be yes, your no be no, or you will be condemned. Why condemned? Anything other than that, Jesus says, because coming from the evil one. It's deception. It's manipulation. I'm trying to get you to, I'm trying to convince you that I'm trustworthy when I'm really not. I promise I won't sell your email to everybody and you'll get spam every day. Like, it's an integrity issue in the first place. So Jesus says, my followers ought to be trustworthy, faithful, even in the midst of suffering and trial and persecution. To live with such integrity, why? Because he wants his people to be different from everybody else, even when it's difficult to be who God's called you to be. I mean, in those days, being a Christian meant being cut off. Being a Christian might mean being executed. Being a Christian might mean being cut off from society and having no resources or way to eat or where a place to live, or any of those things. And he's saying, if you say you're a Christian, be one. So there was risk and consequences with it. There's another reason. There's other, a couple other reasons we take oaths, though. And it's, sometimes it's to try to control God. I promise, I swear to God, God's going to handle this. It's like we're trying to bind God into doing our magic for us. You know what I mean? Like, hey... I don't really trust God to fulfill this, but I'm going to make a promise so that God, God won't let me down. If I promise this, then God has to come through for me. It's like we're trying to bind God into committing for our promise and our goal or our desire. Anybody see a problem with that? Trying to limit God to your agenda. We've had, people talk about this before. It's like God has a sense of humor sometimes, right? You know what I mean? The weather will be perfect for the egg bowl. Oh, really? Watch this. You know what I mean? There's times in our life we go, okay, God, that was a good one. Next. We can't bind God into something. We can't control God. What's the other way we take oaths to try to control God? Your prayer life ever sound like this? I promise God if you get me out of this, I will go to church every day until Jesus comes back. 
You ever heard those oaths before? If you'll just get me through me tonight, I will do, I'll go to the mission field and live in a little hut in Africa. I mean, people have made those kinds of promises before. Why? They're bargaining with God. They're trying to control God. If I'll do this for you, you do this for me. I promise God, I won't do that sin anymore if you will just protect me from the consequences of the sin I keep doing over and over and over and over again. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily work that way, does it? What are we trying to do? We're trying to manipulate God. We're trying to manipulate others by taking an oath that we're full of integrity when we're not. So why would we be condemned if you take oaths? Not because of the oath, because of what's going on in here when you take the oath. It's not the oath that's sin. I'm going to hell because I took an oath last week. That's not how it works. But what's going on in here? I'm trying to manipulate somebody. I'm trying to manipulate God. I'm trying to control God. That's a heart that's not in step with God. And I'm trying to force God to be something I want him to be that he's not. And vows can have absolute ridiculous consequences. There's an Old Testament story, a guy named Jephthah. I won't read the whole story. I'll just kind of tell you the highlights. I got in trouble doing that last week. We're going to do this. We're going to try this anyway. Jephthah was one of the judges. This is the time in the Bible where it gets really weird. It's Game of Thrones level stuff. I promise you, it's weird. So Jephthah gets called as a judge to lead the people of Israel into battle against the Amorites. One of those ites. Ammonites, and he's, they, they call him back. They convince him to lead him in the battle, and he goes to God, and he says, God, I promise that if you'll deliver Israel, whatever comes out of my tent after the battle, I will give back to you as a sacrifice. That was the promise he made. That was the oath he took before God with God, him and God having a conversation so he goes off, God delivers the Ammonites, whichever ite it was, into the hands of Israel. And he comes back, and the first thing or person out of his tent is his only daughter. And he's bound by an oath to sacrifice his daughter. Like sacrifice, as in execute burnt offering. Taking an oath can have a tremendous consequence. Jesus says, let your yes be yes, let your no be no. I will do that, I won't do that. I will be faithful, I won't be faithful. No matter what persecution I'm facing, no matter what trial I'm facing, I will be faithful to Christ. I don't need to take a, on my honor, I'll do my best to do my duty. Yeah, Oaths aren't bad, it's the heart inside the oath. That was, a, that was some of the scout oath, in case you didn't know. <laughs> Scouts aren't bad. Pledge of allegiance, not a sin. But what's going on is trying to manipulate and control circumstances or God. Remember, this is a passage on patience and suffering to start with. And so when we're faced with a trial, what do we want to do, of course? Hey, God, fix this. And I promise I will. Oh, wait, now it fits, right? Get me past this. And I promise I will. Hey, I promise I'm going to take care of that for you in the midst of suffering trial. You get it. So now it kind of fits, right? So now as you say, be patient in suffering, he pivots and keeps going in verse 13. Because oaths either cover doubt or they try to force God's hand. Instead, when we're facing suffering or doubt, remember he said in verse chapter 1, consider it pure joy 
when you face hardship. Then verse 13. Are there any among you, are any among you suffering? They should pray. Any cheerful, they should sing songs of praise. Are, I'm losing my place. Are any of you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and, ha- and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sin will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. For three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth yielded its harvest. Remember, I said rain's a metaphor. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and is brought back by another, you should know that whoever brings back a sinner from wandering will save the sinner's soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Checking. All right, so be patient, endure, look to the return of Jesus when you're suffering. Then he asked the rhetorical question. Any of you suffering, you should pray. And if you're sick, you should call on the elders of the church to come and lay oil on you and pray over you so that you will be healed. Anybody who is is full of sin will be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other. There's a scary passage. How you doing? Here's how I sin today. Right? Come together. Remove sin, remove illness, remove strife, remove conflict. If you're suffering, you're losing patience, you're losing heart, pray. Pray. Ask others to pray. And it's very common for a New Testament letter, for the writer of the New Testament letter to call on the people of God to pray. They kind of thought it was a big deal, kind of important that you should. The difference with James is he actually is calling on into what we call intercessory prayer. It's not the prayer of the sick person that heals the sick person. It's the prayer of those around him that has power. Did you notice that? He calls on others to come pray for the people who are suffering. He calls on the rest of the group to come pray for those who are suffering with something right now. He's calling the church to pray for each other. Now, if you remember, as we've talked about this, the context is what? There has been strife and discord in the church. There has been competition and lording over each other because some have wealth and some don't. And some have privilege and are treated well because they have lots of money. And they've been lying and grumbling to each other and manipulating each other. And he goes, pray for each other. That's not a shocking recommendation, is it? A group of Christians who don't get along, who are fighting, who are in conflict with each other or jealous of each other, pray for each other. Pray over each other. Pray that they will be healed or prosper. It's really, really hard to stay mad at somebody you're praying for. It's really, really hard to be jealous of somebody you're praying for. It's really, really hard to stay in conflict with somebody you're praying for. If you don't believe me, try it. Unless you're calling down fire from heaven on this person. (laughs) But he's saying, pray for each other, intervene on each other's behalf, anoint them with oil, which there's all kinds of reasons that would be drawn in. 
but oil is a symbol in the scriptures of the presence of God. So I'm going to pray over you. I'm going to anoint your head with oil. It's a physical symbol or representation of God's presence in this conversation with God. Does God miraculously heal? Sometimes. What happens if he doesn't? That's kind of the obvious question when you read that, right? You read the pastors, call the elders over to pray over you and people will be healed. But he also says, sin will be forgiven. And then he follows it with, confess your sins to each other. And he follows that with, if somebody among you is sinning, bring them back and that will cover a multitude of sins and they will be saved from death. He's not always talking about spiritual, I mean, physical illness in this passage. He's talking about spiritual. Maybe they'll be miraculously cured. The Holy Spirit can choose to do that, but I think the pastoral intent of the letter is it's time to be peacemakers, to bring a harvest of righteousness. He holds out Elijah as an example who prayed for it not to rain. And then he prayed for it to rain and it did. Remember what I told you the meaning of rain is in scripture? Why would Elijah pray for not to rain on the people of Israel? What happens when it doesn't rain? The crops don't grow. The community doesn't flourish. The people who have wandered off in sin are being judged because they can't flourish while that's happening. And then when Elijah turns around and says, let it rain, it does. And what does rain represent? The blessing, the presence, and the restoration of God. And why would God call judgment on people? Why would God say, withhold blessing, withhold rain? What happens when we do that? Hey, God, we need rain. Where does our loyalty, where does our faith return to when we're facing hardship and trial? God. Exams are in a couple of weeks or less. There's lots of Christians at Mississippi State in two weeks. God, just get me through this exam and I promise I'll go back to church. Sound familiar? <laughs> right? Help me. I know I didn't study. I know I went to the ball game instead, but I got to get past this exam, please. Right? God's like, <laughs> good luck with that. Satan came up with calculus. No. Um, so it's a trial. It's a hardship. It's painful. It's a challenge. And where do we look in the midst of those hardships and pain and challenge? To the coming of the Lord, to each other for prayer. And there's, there's eschatological language in here. Verse 15, he will raise them up. That doesn't necessarily mean like, boop, I'm back on my feet. It's a spiritual, I will raise up my people. I will bring them once again to where it goes. Verse 16, pray, corporate prayer, corporate forgiveness, corporate confession. And by corporate, I mean body of Christ together. I don't think the sin passage, the verse about confess all of your sins. We're not gonna like, okay, everybody come tell me everything you did this week. Right, I think what it means is in the context of James and in everything he's written and talking about, if you've sinned against somebody else, you ought to confess that and bring peace. If somebody has wronged you, that conversation needs to happen. Why? What would James' goal be in this past, in this whole letter be? It might be for the physical people who are suffering and hardship and sick and to be better. That might be part of it. But he's writing to a group of churches saying that the body of Christ needs to be healthy. And here's how you get it healthy. Pray for one another. Confess your grievances with one another. Lift each other up. Anoint each other with oil. 
call on the elders. It says, call on the elders. By the way, it says, call the elders, the leaders of the church. And it doesn't say, it's interesting, because James was the head of the Christian church in Jerusalem. You know where the main synagogue was? The one that Jesus spoke in or read scripture in, that same synagogue. He doesn't use the word for synagogue there. He uses the Greek word ekklesia, which means gathering of believers, essentially. So James says, call the elders of the church. That's the word we use for church in the New Testament, the ekklesia. Call the church people that are gathered, call the leaders of the church together to pray over these people. He's talking about a body of people, not an institution. Not a Jewish synagogue building, but a group of gathered believers. Have those leaders pray over those who are sick and suffering. So when we're facing suffering or doubt, we consider it joy. We wait patiently and pray to a God we know keeps his promises. That's what chapter 5 is driving home. In fact, you could say it this way. Prayer is the context that a believer waits for God's justice. Let me say that again. Prayer is the context that we wait for God to make everything right. Are you suffering? Is anyone suffering? Is anyone struggling? Have someone pray. Submit yourself to God. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for one another and wait for the day of the coming of the Lord. Because then, as Revelation promises us, no more suffering, no more pain, no more tears. It's coming. We're to wait through whatever our circumstances are. As a body of believers, strengthening one another, praying over one another until Jesus gives us final victory. And that is our reason for hope. Let's pray. God, thank you for this book we call James. Thank you for a reminder that even when we are in the midst of suffering, you are there. That enduring hardship, enduring suffering, we can have joy because it only brings us closer and closer to you. Not because the circumstances are good, but because you are and you are in them with us. Make us a praying, confessing, loving, encouraging group that is headed toward a harvest of righteousness. But Lord, we confess this morning that our heart is waiting for your justice. Help us to hope in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.